Welcome to Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Volts. With me, as always, my main man, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you, brother? Oh, Foltz, I feel good. How are you, dude? Feel good. Feel good. I'm loving, uh, I'm loving that we're in the studio. And, uh, you know, I'm just loving being able to uh, go out and do different things now. Uh, you know, ever since, uh, you know, the quote-unquote pandemic, you know, a lot of things have been closed down, but here where we live now, fortunately, things are opening back up, like uh, things I never thought I might see again, like movie theaters and stuff like that. How about it? It's almost like it was. Just yeah. A couple little things, but uh, very much open. Yeah. So, I mean, have you gone out and checked out anything that you haven't seen like in a while? Like, have you gone to the movies or are you more of a stay at home and Netflix it? I'll tell you what, dude. I love movies. And that means that I like to go places to watch movies. I like to go um, to drive-ins. I like to go movie theaters sometimes. Definitely like with the big blockbusters. Um, and, And also, I remember a lot of movies in movie theaters as a child. Right, right. Yeah, me too. Like, you know, some of the the classics of today. I can remember seeing like Return of the Jedi and, uh, oh gosh, you know, like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, man. Yeah. Good 80s stuff. But, uh, you know, I always like to, I I like to at late, late night when I'm relaxed and trying to unwind, I'll put on like a good, like maybe like a good Back to the Future, like trilogy and try and watch as much as I can. You've been doing stuff like that? That's, um... Michael J. Fox. Yeah. I do. I, I sometimes will sort my movies by actors. In fact, um, Harrison Ford, uh, crossover between Star Wars, you said Return of the Jedi, and right. Indiana Jones. Right. Just read an article on him. I don't know if you know this. Indiana Jones 5 is being filmed right now. Wow. I did not know that. that That's awesome. That is, uh, they've taken that as i think as far as i don't you know you never can tell how far they're going to take something fast and the furious is on nine so but uh yeah number five and i also heard that harrison ford got hurt on set wow he's got to be up there in age to be rolling around being indiana jones yeah i think he is 76 wow 76 years old and still still killing it as indiana jones i'll be excited to see that like that and like along with like top gun but i mean indiana jones other than the one with, uh, you know, Shia LaBeouf. Right. Which which was a great one because that's in our wheelhouse the most because they discover aliens of either trans-dimensional or outer space. Right. Aliens. That one was Crystal Skulls. Yeah. I love that one. I loved uh, the one with Sean Connery as his dad. I thought that was awesome. Yeah. I can remember seeing that one back probably when I was in the movie theater, 12, 13 years old, and... You know, it was so interesting to search for the Holy Grail. Yes, that one they had. Well, they played that one in the the time when Germany was, you know, trying to take over the world. Oh yeah, during World War Two. Right, and you and I have gone over a lot of historical facts, and that time period interests us big so. time. But yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, in that, I mean, in that movie. Indiana Jones and the Search for the Holy Grail, I believe it is, right? Yep. Uh, you know, spoiler alert, it's only been out 30 years, but uh, they uh, at the end when they finally are able to try and go and find the Holy Grail, it's being guarded by a knight, and it's going to be one of the main topics of tonight, or the topic, the, the Knights Templar. I mean... They always pledged their life. These guys were no joke kind of guy. They were religious, but you didn't want to mess with them. Well, yeah, there was, I mean, that one was 
amazing. And then they also had Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Um, they had the one where they found the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, that's what I mean. The, the Holy Grail. Yeah. Oh, no, no, that was Raiders of the Lost Ark. R- Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then the Last Crusade is when they find the Cup of Christ. Right. Okay. So it wasn't the search for the Holy. It was the Last Crusade. But I mean, it, the common theme there is that they're, they're hunting for holy relics. Exactly. I mean, even in the, uh, in the second one, the Temple of Doom, they were holy relics to that local uh, tribe from India. Right. The, the circle stone or the stones with the lines in them put the stone back in at the end and made everything the ground fertile and yeah everything brought out all the children back and everything so that that is a cool concept um i think we should dive into it tonight yeah let's i'm gonna kick it off right now so we're gonna jump in with the true history and or the conspiracy theories if you will about the knights templar it was christmas day 1119 the king of jerusalem baldwin ii persuaded a group of French knights led by Hugh de Payne II to save their souls by protecting pilgrims traveling the Holy Land. And so, the Order of the Knights Templar was formed. This revolutionary order of knights lived as monks and took vows of poverty and chastity. But these were monks with a difference. They would take up arms as knights to protect the civilians using dangerous roads of the newly conquered kingdom of Jerusalem. From these humble beginnings, the order would grow to become one of the premier Christian military forces of the Crusades. Now, over the next 900 years, these warrior monks would become associated with the Holy Grail, the Freemasons, and the occult. But are any of these associations true, or are they just baseless myth? Well, the Crusades ended in 1291, after the Christian capital of Acre fell to the Mameluke forces of Egypt and the Templars found themselves redundant. Despite their wealth and European holdings, their reason for existing had been to wage war in defense of the Holy Land. But the French King Philip IV was in debt to the Templar order, and with the, Ho- and with the Holy Land lost, he capitalized on their vulnerability and had the Templars arrested in France on October 13, 1307. It was a Friday in a dawn raid on their Paris temple and residence. In 1312, the order was abolished by Papal decree, and in 1314, the last Grand Master, Jacques de Molay, was burned at the stake in Paris with three other Templars. With the order destroyed, any surviving former members joined other orders or monasteries. So they got out of Dodge when those decrees were coming down. Yeah, if it's your group and they make that group illegal and they're burning them at the stake, you roll out. Yeah, just be like, you know, how about not Templars so much? How about (laughs) we're like, you know, the Guardians? Let's change our image here. Maybe drop the Knights part. Yeah. (laughs) Now, even though despite the arrests and charges of heresy being laid against the order, a document known as Shannon Parchment was found in 2001 in the Vatican's archives, which documents that the Templars were, in fact, exonerated by the Catholic Church in 1312. But despite clearing them of heresy, Pope Clement ordered that they be disbanded. So there you have it. I mean, disbanded for life. That was their their whole their whole time. Yeah, I mean, they're saying that they were exonerated. That's almost like saying that somebody that you just put to death in the electric chair. Oh, by the way, he was innocent. Right. Po- posthumously. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, 
Do you want to jump in with a, uh, this a legend appropriation? Absolutely. The suppression of the Templars meant that there was nobody to safeguard their legacy. Since then, the order has been appropriated by other organizations, most notably as ancestors to the Masonic order in the 18th century and, more recently, by right-wing extremist groups such as the Knights Templar UK and mass-murdering terrorist Anders Berig Breivik. Nice one. The Knights Templar Association with Freemasonry is not so much a myth as it was a marketing campaign by the 18th century Freemasons to appeal to the aristocracy. Historian Frank Sinello explained in his 2003 book, The Knights Templar, God's Warriors, the Devil's Bankers, that initially it was Andrew Ramsey, a senior French Freemason of the era, who first made the link between the Freemasons and the Crusader Knights. Did you know there was a link between? I did not. I did not either. We have uh, performed for the Freemasons. Yeah, and we had a great night with them. Very interesting group of people, very interesting building. They are very protective of their secrets, which me and Steve learned just by doing sound check. There were certain places that they didn't want us to be or look at. Yes, so there is uh, definitely something to the Freemasons. I didn't know there was a link directly to the uh, the Crusader Knights there. I know, that's, that's pretty awesome. But he originally claimed the Freemasons were descended from the crusading order of the Knight Hospitaller. Of course, the Hospitallers were still operational, unlike the Knights Templar. So Ramsey quickly changed to his, his claim to the Templars being the Freemasons' crusading ancestry. Now, the Knights Templar had actually been mythologized in popular culture as early as the 13th century in the Grail epic Parzival by German knight and poet Wolfram von Eisenbach. In this Grail epic, the Knights Templar were included in the story as the guardians of the Grail. After the Order's sudden fall, these warrior monks became associated with conspiracies and of the occult. Well, of course, because it just couldn't be explained, so it's got to be hit with the occult or conspiracy. That's how they explain everything. Yeah. For some reason, a mystery still surrounds the fate of the Templar fortune, which was in reality seized by Philip IV, with the majority of their property redistributed to the Hospitallers. And the Templar confessions, which were extracted under torture, God. To worshipping an idol dubbed Baphomet. Basically Satan. Which Fultz told me that in, in pre-show. I didn't, I didn't realize that's not a great thing. Uh, the link between the Templars and the occult would resurface again in the 16th century in Henry Agrippa's book, The Occulta Philosophia. Wow. So we got a little history there. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting stuff. I like this. So, man, they're trying to even say that well, these guys, not only were they not good, they were worshiping the devil, basically, or like fin fi- false idols. and That's just like trying to slander them. Oh, yeah, sure. And it, you know what? Uh, 2,000 years later, it's still you know being talked about, so they did a good job with it. They lied on them. Now, there is modern-day myth. You know, modern fiction continues to draw upon the widespread mysteries and the fanciful theories. And these mythical... Associations are key themes for many popular works of fiction, such as Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, in which the Templars guard the Grail. 
The Templar myth has also found its way into digital gaming format in the globally successful Assassin's Creed franchise, in which the player must assassinate a villainous Templar. I've read every Dan Brown book that there is. They're good. He, he uh, does great. I remember when my dad was reading some of them, and uh, you know, we I grew up in a Catholic family, and you know, my dad was pretty devout Catholic. And reading it, he said the the writing was so good, he had to re- remind himself that this was just a theory and not based <laughs> off of like religion and. Now, nine centuries after they were formed, the Templars remain the most iconic and infamous order of knights from the Crusades. The Templar legacy has grown beyond the medieval military role, and the name has become synonymous with occult and conspiracies, the Holy Grail, and the Freemasons. But but these are all false narratives. Fantastical, but misleading. The real legacy of the Templar remains with the Portuguese order of the knights, Ordem dos Cavaleros de Nosor Senhor Jesus Cristo. My favorite when you do that. <laughs> order of the Knights of Jesus Christ, that is. This order was created by King Diniz in 1319 with Papal permission due to the prominent role of the Templars played in establishing the Kingdom of Portugal. The new knighthood even moved into the Templars' former headquarters at Tamar. Now, for historian Michael Hag. This new order was the Templars under the under another name, but it pledged obedience to the King of Portugal and not the Pope like the Templar predecessors. And so, the essence of the Templar successors still exists today as the as a Portuguese order of merit for outstanding service, and the Templar myth continues to provide a rich source of information for artistic endeavors. So I wonder if it's if you're saying kind of like in in Portugal, the Knights Templar. I wonder if they're carrying on with like a like within an association such as the Freemasons. You know, that's what it almost sounds like today. It does. It sounds like they they had a banned. You know, they they were banned. They couldn't have right open Templar meetings. So it seems like the main people from the Templars went and created you know something new and different and hid kind of under the cover of a different organization. Uh, Yeah, I agree. Which means that they have something important or they wouldn't be fighting that hard to protect it. Well, certainly. And that, and that's what leads us into our next, uh, our next session. So, uh, section, excuse me. So uh, Steve, take it away. This is uh, lost relics of the Templar, the Knights Templar and the Nazi hunt, the Nazis, you know the Nazis wanted all this stuff. Well, I mean, they're so they're they're brought up in so many of our podcasts, from you know from the Knights Templar to aliens to um, astral projection. It's true. So I mean, the the, uh, the Nazis is awful as an organization was, and and always will be throughout history. They were looking a lot into the occult for answers, for sure. Led by led by Hitler himself. Yeah. And, and, uh, and Himmler and a few others, as we're going to get into here. So, Lost Relics of the Knights Templar sees treasure hunters Carl Cookson and Hamilton White embark on a global odyssey. Their objective? To trace the past of a horde of artifacts which may have once belonged to the Templars. One of their destinations is Wellsburg, the imposing German castle which served as the spiritual sanctum for Heinrich Himmler and the SS. Today, the castle is a looming reminder of how so many members of the Third Reich were beguiled by ancient myths, old orders of chivalry, 
and by the occult. We all know the pantomime villain Nazis of Indiana Jones films, desperate to dig up the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail, but the fact is, many real-life Nazis were just as obsessed as their cackling silver screen counterparts. Wow. Himmler, in particular, was infected by a virulent strain of spiritualism which fed into his racist, supremacist worldview. For him, establishing a new Aryan empire meant resurrecting ancient Germanic myths and iconography. He believed that the war against the lesser races required the overturning of traditional Christian morality, replacing it with a new kind of pseudo-religion that drew on chivalry and mysticism. Interesting. So Himmler's, you know, out there to use the occult to get this whole Germanic uh, one race up. And just create a religion out of thin air, basically. Uh, the, the now notorious insignia of the SS, resembling two lightning bolts, was based on runes devised by an Austrian occultist and pagan called Guido von Liszt. The SS itself was, in Himmler's mind, an elite organization in the tradition of the Teutonic Knights, an order which, like the Templars, came into existence during the Crusades. Himmler's grand scheme was to establish Wulisberg Castle as the Camelot of his modern-day knights. One of the rooms was even named after King Arthur, while another was designated the Grail Room. Interesting. I'm loving it. Despite his aversion to conventional Christianity, Himmler was fascinated by the legend of the Grail, perhaps seeing it as a source of immense power. After all, he believed that another fabled artifact, Thor's hammer, could be requisitioned as a weapon by the Third Reich. In an outlandish letter to the Ananerb, a a think tank set up to give academic backing to Nazi racial ideology, Himmler stated his belief for Thor's hammer was an early, highly developed war weapon of our forefathers. That's what Himmler thought that Thor's hammer was. For this reason, Himmler demanded that an Arab's team should find all places in the northern Germanic Aryan culture world where an outstanding, where an understanding of the lightning bolt, the thunderbolt, Thor's hammer, or the flying or thrown hammer exists. So he started actually looking for it. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if that's where they ended up getting like, uh, you know, for the what was it? The USSR flag was the hammer and the sickle. I wonder if that was supposed to represent in some way Thor's hammer. Oh, that is cool. I never even thought about that. Yeah. All right. So where are we at here? Okay. Oh, so it seems Himmler personally embarked on a failed mission to find the Holy Grail in 1940, visiting an abbey perched within the Montserrat mountain range in Catalonia. He was presumably led there by the belief that the Montserrat was the real-life Montsalvat location of the Grail in the Arthian opera of Hitler's favorite composer, Richard Wagner. This opera, Parsifal, was based on a medieval German poem called Parzival, written by a knight named Wolfram von Eschenbach, and this poem had already been an inspiration to another grail hunter in the Nazi regime, Otto Rahn. Rahn was somewhat eccentric medievalist who believed that there was a link between the 
who believed that there was a link between the story of Parzival and Catharsism, a movement that flourished in medieval Europe, particularly in France. Now condemned as heretics by the Catholic Church, the Cathars revived old Gnostic concepts that radically overturned traditional Christian thinking. They believed, for example, that the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament were separate entities, the latter sinful and the former good. Such ideas led to a crusade against the Carthers and their wholesale slaughter. Now, a major Carther stronghold was Monsignor, a remote fortress in southwestern France. This became the site of a dramatic confrontation between the Carthers and French royal forces in 1243. Thousands of French troops besieged the fortress for nine long, grueling months before the people inside eventually surrendered. Hundreds of Carthers were burned alive in a bonfire after refusing to renounce their, blas- their blasphemous beliefs. However, it's believed that a number of Carthers managed to smuggle themselves out of the fortress undetected before the brethren surrendered. It's been speculated that these survivors of the siege took some kind of treasure with them, gold perhaps, or maybe even the Holy Grail itself, brought back to Europe from the Holy Land by the Templars or the Crusaders. Autoram, prompted by previous occultists and mysticists, identified Monsugue with Monsalvat, Grail, Castle of Parzival. His ideas appealed greatly to Himmler, and Ron eventually joined the SS himself. The extent of Ron's own Nazi beliefs have been subject of debate. He himself apparently said, a man has to eat. What was I supposed to do? Turn Himmler down? But having such powerful patronage certainly spurred him on to publish more about the Grail, with the SS brazenly inserting anti-Semitic passages into his romantic, mystical prose. Ron eventually redesigned from the SS resigned from the SS and died of exposure on a mountain in 1939, allegedly suicide, through the details, though the details have never been confirmed. Colorful theories regarding the Carthers. The Grail and the potential involvement of the Crusader warriors have persisted in the decades after the fall of the Third Reich, most famously in the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, which theorized that the Carthers knew the secret of the Holy Grail, namely that it was the bloodline of Christ from the marriage of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. This concept fueled the plot of Dan Brown's bestseller, The Da Vinci Code, which also portrays the Templars as the guardians of the earth-shaking secret. Carl Cookson and Hamilton White may not have a fabled holy relic in their hoard, but their quest may well bring new insights into the Templars and their religious treasure hunts in the Holy Land, which has fascinated everyone from eccentric occultists to high-ranking Nazis to serious historians even today. That's so awesome, dude. It is really awesome. I, I love that part of history right there for, in particular. Remember uh, that night we almost died of exposure on that mountain? Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> Me and Steve decided we were going to camp out before the first day of uh, rifle season here in Pennsylvania for, for deer. And it was like 38. Yeah, well, yeah. The, so when, cool. when we got there, when the sun went down, boy, we were freezing. Then when our fire went out, that was it. That was it. I could feel the frost coming through the tent and landing on my face. Yeah, it, it was terrible. So there is a possibility that there is the actual Holy Grail and that it is being protected by these organizations. And you know what? 
like Parzival's castle, you would think that would be a great place for it for a long time. But at some point, castle's going to get ransacked. There was talk of a nine-month siege, not there, but a nine-month siege. You got to take things like that underground and start moving them through organizations and yeah, people. Yeah, exactly. That's how you do it. And that's why these organizations are so important. And there is a protective value that goes along with them because you're not going to find it. If you have one guy that's at the top of these organizations protected by all the other people in that organization and he passes a holy relic to one of the other people, that can go on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Certainly can. Certainly can. So the power is not necessarily in the housing. You know, you can you can build a castle. The castle's going to fall. It's in the organizations that are that are passed down hundreds and hundreds of years later. Exactly. So this next one is the Spear of Destiny. This one is uh, it's the reason why we put this whole show together. This one's pretty cool. So check it out. The Spear of Destiny, also known as the Holy Lance, is in Christian tradition the spear that the Roman soldier... Longinus, Longinus, yeah, Longinus, thrust into the side of Jesus as he hung on the cross. Dang, dude. Yeah, like it doesn't get any better than that. That's like one of the most holy relics of all. Yeah, I mean, and uh, you know, um, mystery has there's there's mystery around it, or the, and there's tales around it that uh, when Longinus when he pierced the side of Christ. Um, that not only did blood spurt out, but also water onto him. And upon that happening, his penance from there on out where uh, he lived eternally. Eternal life. To just roam the earth. I mean, could you imagine for the last 2,000 years? I mean, it would be more painful than anything because anyone that ever came into your life that you loved, you would always outlive. You'd see everyone you know always die. It'd be, it'd be terrible. It would be horrible because nothing you would, nothing would matter to you at that point. Exactly. You could meet you know, someone that would matter to you or have children. It doesn't matter because you would outlive them all and be back to nothingness. Right. And you know, and that, I forgot to make a point back when we were talking about, um, about Christ and the fact in, in that book um, by Dan Brown where he was married to Mary Magdalene. Um, that's not so far-fetched. I don't mean to be disrespectful in any way, but if you think about it in these simple terms, I mean, it's a known fact that, uh, that Christ was a Jew of the Jewish faith. So for, and he also had a beard. So in, in the Jewish faith, you grow a beard after becoming married and, you know, so it's quite possible that, you know, he was married. I mean, and there would have been nothing wrong with that. I mean, he it's not like he was a, a modern-day priest where, you know, there had to be celibacy and all that. So for him to take on a, a wife, maybe Mary Magdalene, I mean, she's supposedly seated to his right in the um, the Last Supper yep. drawing. So, you know, there could be there could be something to that. So, But I digress. Steve, back to the uh, Spear of Destiny. So the Spear of Destiny, we were just talking about um – it piercing the side of Jesus as he was on the cross. And then came the soldiers afterwards uh, and that break the legs of the first and other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they uh, break not his legs. 
But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came out blood and water. That's from John 19. Christian knights discovered the Holy Lance at Antioch during the First Crusade in 1098. The sight of the sacred artifact in the Church of St. Peter so inspired the beleaguered Christian soldiers that they rallied and routed the the Saracens from the city. I guess it's Saracens. From that time forth, according to the legend, however, whoever claims the spear and solves its secrets holds the destiny of the world in his hands for good and evil. That's very interesting. I like that because there's there's um there's Egyptian uh, writings on the wall or depictions of of their gods, you know, with different animal heads on. And in most of those pictures, you can see them, you know, they're holding a spear and it, it, it almost always looks like there's something coming out of it, maybe with a little round like uh, jewel in it. So there's something to this, the sacred powers of a um, spear of destiny. I mean, it could have been a, around a lot longer than, uh, than what we even know. Now, although there are a number of relics in various European churches that claim to be the genuine holy lance, the spear that is on the de- on display at Welichtis Schatzkammer Museum, the Habsburg Treasure House Museum in Vienna, has been considered the most authentic and has found a home there for over 250 years. It's also known as Constantine's Lance, and it was employed as a symbol of the imperial power of the Holy Roman Emperors at the time of their coronation in a much similar manner as the orb and scepter are used in the coronations of the monarchs of the Great Britain. Now, according to Trevor Ravenscroft in The Spear of Destiny, 1997, a 19-year-old Adolf Hitler was first led to the lance in 1908, and from the moment of his first encounter with it in the museum, it became a central pivot in his life and the very source of his ambitions to conquer the world. In addition to Constantine, Hitler found that as many as 45 emperors had owned the lance before the great Charlemagne had possessed it. Frederick the Great of Germany, who found the Teutonic Knights on which Hitler allegedly based his SS, had also been an owner of the Spear of Destiny at one time. Ravenscroft's claim in his book that Hitler would often visit the museum and stare at the Holy Lance and enter into a trance state in which he would view his future glory as the master of the Third Reich. Thirty years later, on March 14, 1938, Hitler arrived in Vienna to oversee the annexation of Austria. He also observed the transfer of the Habsburg Crown Jewel Collection, which included the Holy Lance from Vienna to Nuremberg, the Nazis' favorite city. With the Spear of Destiny now safely ensconced in Germany, Hitler declared that the war could begin in earnest. The lance would be well protected in the hall of St. Catherine's Church, where it had once rested for, only, for nearly 400 years. However, later in the war, when Allied bombers damaged a portion of St. Catherine's, the many treasures looted by the Nazis and stored there were taken into another hiding place. In the chaos and confusion, the Holy Lance was inadvertently left behind. The Spear of Destiny fell into the hands of U.S. soldiers on April 30, 1945, a few hours after the Holy Lance passed from Nazi possession onto its next claimant to world power. Adolf Hitler committed suicide in his Berlin bunker. Later, the United States officially returned the Holy Lance to Austria, along with the other treasures that the Nazis had stolen. Today, the Spear of Destiny stands again in the Habsburg Treasure House Museum in Vienna. 
Wow, that's a lot to go through for a spear. I mean, the, the, it had to have had some type of some power around it or some type of overwhelming feeling of wanting to conquer or be in control or something. I guess it may be one of those things where it depends on what it's used for. It could be used for good or it could be used for bad. And in Hitler's case, he decided to use it for bad. I think that of all the places we've ever said that we wanted to visit, this has got to be the best one. Uh, yeah. This is my fact. I, I really want to go see the Spear of Destiny in Vienna. That would be awesome. I, I would love to do it as well. I Hopefully we, we don't should. become entranced with it. No, I don't want to take it. But if I did, I would use it for good. Definitely. That's to cure all the world's problems generally that are taking from us. Fultz and I live our lives. So if we were the... Uh, the guardians of said Lance, I think that we would be able to elevate its use to the next level and help as much as possible. At least we would try our best anyway. So there's a little history of some uh, holy relics, where they came from, what what they do, and Hitler's little short possession of uh, the Spear of Destiny, which he used to spark the entire war. And when he lost it, uh, eventually lost his life. And how these how these uh, groups broke off and formed other like subcommittees, if you will, trying to hide under the guise of different names. I mean, these uh, these Templar groups and these uh, Carthers and all that remind me of like a like a modern day grassroots organization that's just like you know what we've had enough. We got to form our own thing. And fight the powers that be to some level, whatever their specialty may be. And it might be out there. The Holy Grail could be out there. It could be. Now Cup of Christ. If you think about it though, I mean Ark Christ, of the Covenant. Christ was a carpenter. So chances are that the Holy Grail was most likely carved out of wood. Did it decompose over these time? Was it well preserved? I mean, was it if it was held onto and kept somewhere, yes. If it was just forgotten about and you're trying to find it like nature or Whatever, I'm sure it had decomposed by now. Or you, you can't say. I mean, Christ's popularity at the time was at its pinnacle. There was a lot of uh, very ornate jeweled um, cups from the time era. So it could be something that has been preserved uh, through these Knights Templar or organizations for years and we, years. Yeah, if, and if you remember in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I mean, the SS officer there. He had these delusions of grandeur that, you know, just because uh, Christ is the king of kings, that the uh, the grail was like some golden chalice with, you know, jewels all over it. But, you know, Indiana Jones being an archaeologist and a student of history knew way better. I'm sure he was still nervous when he drank from it, but yeah, he didn't want it to happen. He didn't want to turn to dust like that other guy, but... And he saved his dad. He knew his dad had the... Yeah, it took to remove the bullet. and But it almost almost killed other people, too, out of greed. Like, Indiana Jones almost fell, and his dad said, let it go. And then, the you know, the, the female interest in the movie, she was SS. And then she was like, I can almost reach it when it was going to fall through that crack in the earth. And She did go. She did, because greed overtook her. And Indiana was like, give me your hand. I can't hold you. And there she went. It killed her. Greed killed her. R.I.P. Sean Connery. Yes, yes. Great man, great actor. Always uh always kept me uh enthralled in what was going on in his movies, you know, James Bond to Indiana Jones to all the other wonderful uh stories that he told. But uh yeah, that's our uh that's our show on uh, Knights Templar. A little a little shorter of a show, but you know what? Jam packed full of information and uh 
we're excited about that because, like Steve said, we were going to do a show, maybe just around the, um, you know, the, the spear, the spear. But uh, gosh, it just led to so many different avenues with the Knights Templar that we just wanted to include it all. But it was fun. I liked it. Good times. The holy relics may be out there. If you know where they're at, just tell us. Yeah, give us a heads up, and uh, we'll do a show on it. But uh, <laughs> until next time, I'm Fultz. And I'm Steve. We'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.